Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W. Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley Jean. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 11 of the Fly the W Podcast. This is Buck O'Neill and Ernie Banks. Happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday morning as Crowley and I have a uh, early edition of a uh, recording of Episode number 11. All right, Crowley, before we get into the Cubs, uh, who's your pick for the Super Bowl? Okay, uh, I have no real dog in this fight, but <laughs> but there are three people that really kind of mean a lot to me that are rooting for the Chiefs. The Red Baron, Rick Sutcliffe, our guest today on Fly the W, Bob Kendrick down in Kansas City, and then finally Scotty Chingone. He is a um, he's one of the best cameramen out in Marquee. He's a huge Chiefs fan, so because of that, I'm pulling Chiefs. You know who else is a huge uh, Chiefs fan, a uh, big part of the Cubs? Do you know who that is? Who's coaching that? Coaching staff. I'll, I'll, uh, we'll play a little game here. I'll, coaching staff. Remember the coaching staff, big Chiefs fan. Big Chiefs fan. Wouldn't be Ross. Hadovy, Tommy? Tommy Hadovy, huge Chiefs fan. Yep, I am also uh, pulling for the Chiefs, and I think the Chiefs will win a really, really good Super Bowl, but that's not why you're here. You're here to uh, – Listen and hopefully download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to our podcast and to follow all the socials, Fly the W670 on Twitter and Instagram, and Fly the W on Facebook, or email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. All right, Crowley, before we get into a uh, little Buck O'Neill, little Ernie Banks, um, let's talk about the Cubs pitching staff. They had an addition since the last time you and I got together, Michael Fulmer joining our Cubs. Yeah, um, you know, Jed's been saying for a while that the Cubs wanted to add some more veteran bullpen depth. They got a lot of young guys there, and that's what he did on Friday by adding righty Michael Fulmer. Uh, You remember Fulmer, he was the American League Rookie of the Year in 2016, but that was as a starter. So injuries have caused him to kind of transition into a bullpen role. And in 2023, so far in his career, uh, 115 career relief appearances. He's logged in a 298 ERA playing with both the Tigers and the Twins, uh, 339 ERA with 61 strikeouts, 28 walks, and 63 and two-thirds innings last season. So good pickup, right? Um, I know some Cub fans' hearts were broken when um, Andrew Chafin, the lefty, the sheriff, uh, he signs with the Arizona Diamondbacks. But you do, you know, this kind of adds to the signing that Jed made in December of Brad Boxberger from Milwaukee. So you see those two guys as being the veteran presence in the bullpen. So with this move, Dustin, the pitching staff is starting to look clear as far as what you see. So just to remind our listeners, you have a 26-man roster from opening day through August 31st and during the postseason. Teams are limited to carrying 13 pitchers during this time. And then, of course, from September 1st to the end, you can add two more players, um, one of them being a pitcher. So 13 pitchers to make the staff. So, Dustin, fair to say we know four solid locks in the rotation, correct? Yes, I think that's I think that's pretty safe to say. And as we get into those four, go ahead, give us the four. 
You got Marcus Stroman, Jameson Tyone, Drew Smiley, and Justin Steele. Now, the question is that fifth rotation spot. That's up for grab, and there's a few strong candidates looking to make their case in spring training starting this Wednesday when pitchers and catchers report. Love it. Uh, the candidates. Crawley's first <laughs> holiday of the season. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting closer. So who do we got? We're, we're taking a look for that fifth starter spot. You got Keegan Thompson. He appeared in 29 games, started in 17 uh, would have been more. He had a, a little injury issue in April and also one at the end of the season. Um, but, but he was, you know, that he did really good while he was in there. Uh, our favorite Dustin, Adrian Sampson, the bulldog who just goes in there and gets it done somehow, some way 21 games. He appeared in last year. He started in 19 Dustin's personal favorite Hayden Wesniski was nasty appeared in six games, started in four. You have Javier Assad, who appeared in nine games and started in eight. And then Adbert Alzali was injured most of the season. He appeared in six games, but it wasn't until the second half of September. He did not start any. So looking at those names, I mean, you know, you got a couple of young guys in there. Adrian Sampson's the veteran of that group. Um, and I'm going to be 100. You know, I see Javier Assad starting in AAA. I don't see him making the team. Um, the big question, I guess, for me, right, is Adbert Alzali. We just talked about Michael Fulmer and how he started out as a rookie of the year as a starter, but, you know, injuries kind of derailed him and he ended up in a bullpen role. To me, I'm kind of just thinking that Adbert Alzali is a guy that I could potentially see making that same transition. And he's got some, especially, if you know, you, you got to understand, pitchers have to kind of, they can't go all out because they have to try to make it five, six, seven innings, right? But when you only have to pitch one, maybe two innings, you can crank it up a lot more. So I think Adbert's an interesting candidate for the closer's job. Wow, really? I do. Wow. He's got some wicked stuff. And I, and now, I, Crowley, looking, looking at the bullpen, there, there is a huge glaring need and issue, and, and kind of the staff overall. And that's the left-handed pitching, right? Right. I mean, they, they right now, this bullpen – has one one left-handed pitcher, right? Yeah. Brand, Brandon Hughes, they have one lefty. I mean, is Brandon uh, Hughes going to pitch every single day? Well, is he going to make an appear? right? I mean, and what am I missing here? Well, as far as the bullpen, yeah, it looks like one lefty. And so, right. a lot of so these... that's what I'm worried about with Justin yeah. Steele, okay? I'm worried that they may feel that they've got to take a guy who's maybe on the edge in their mind, like a – Samson and West Nesty, West Newski, um, and put them into the starting rotation and have Steele in the bullpen because of the, the lack of lefties. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to tell you right now, Justin Steele, if you were to, to you know, kind of start your rotation, however, you know, he may be quote unquote penciled in as your fourth starter, right? So you're going to have Jameson Tyone's a veteran. Marcus Stroman obviously was the big signing last year. Um, and, and, and Drew Smiley had a great season. But if you're asking me, there's a guy that could turn into a number one because right now, just looking at it, I don't see a number one ace starter. No. No. But I take a look at Justin Steele and I say to myself, with what that kid did last year, he, he you know, he's one of those guys that if we're talking about the Cubs making the postseason, it's because it, one of the reasons would be Justin Steele taking that next step. 
Had and a breakout so year. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. No way he makes it into the bullpen. I think a lot of these guys have pretty even splits. They're not guys that, you know, tend to get out righties more than lefties and vice versa. They're, they're pretty even all in all, which I think once you started to see that rule where you had to pitch to minimum three batters, you start to see less and less of those specialty guys that are, you know, you know, you got a lefty in there to face the lefties, you know, you, you see less of that because you can't just have them in for one batter, you know, to get out that tough lefty. You got to sit there and be able to get lefties and righties out. And so the loogie, um, it, it, that that's kind of starting to go extinct a little bit. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. So I, I would say, you know, when you look at those guys that we mentioned, Keegan, Adrian, Hayden, Javier, like I said, thinking in the, in the uh, minors to start, but I think whichever of those pitchers gets the fifth starter, the rest of these guys are going to make their way into the bullpen as multiple inning piggyback style relievers. And that's how, that's how Keegan started last year until injuries required him to, um, take a more of a starting role, Adrian Sampson as well. So those are guys that, you know, as we talk about only going through the rotation three times in the order, you know, you could easily have Hayden Wesneski, Adrian Sampson, Keegan Thompson take three innings. So, I mean, if a starter goes four or five innings and those guys can maybe go three, four, you may only need two guys in the bullpen, you know what I mean? Or, I mean, use two guys out of the, uh, in your pitching staff on any given day. All right, two more questions for you. Let's let's go back. You mentioned his name, and, and we're all a little disappointed because he's such a fun guy, but Andrew Chafin. Now, supposedly he wanted a two-year deal. The Cubs only wanted to do a one-year deal. But as I look at the report, okay, he got 6.25 with a team option for 2024. The Cubs couldn't have done that? I mean, yeah, I, I just, I, I, that, it just doesn't seem like a deal – that the Cubs could not have done. It, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the reason the Fulmer and, and Chafin signed so late, it just looks like the reliever market just kind of cratered. You know what I mean? Those guys mm-hmm. were expecting a lot more and teams weren't willing to do it. Um, could the Cubs have done it? You know, have to take a look again at where they stand because I did not do that after the Fulmer signing. Um, they're going to have to kind of make a decision on where they are in the middle of the season, if they're going to be buyers or sellers. And if they are going to be buyers, you want to be able to have a little bit of money, um, you know, in, in reserve just in case that happens. So, you know, I think with Chafin, you know, didn't he, I believe he started, he was with the Diamondbacks before he was with the Cubs, if memory serves me correctly. So I would, if you want to check that for me, but um, you know, I think, I think that, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll he's see. reuniting. He's reuniting with them. Yes, that's it's, a, that's it's a team what I that he's, so. It's a team that he's been with before. Yep. So mm-hmm. it may, you know, we don't know that he, they did or didn't offer him, and maybe he just felt more comfortable going to Arizona. Maybe they didn't offer him anything. I don't know. Um, but I, I think that whole righty lefty thing is, is not going to be a big a deal as we see. So all right, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. I'm just concerned that they're super duper right handed. Also, one more guy I want to talk to you about, pitching wise. What are your expectations with Kyle Hendricks? I, I'm, I am. I mean, I'm he's a starter. Honest. He's not I, a bullpen I'm, guy, right? right? He's not. He's not a guy who's going to come out of the bullpen. He's either going to start, or he's not going to be with the team. I'm nervous. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I am nervous about um, his health. He is a guy that clearly, you know, he, you know, he, he's never relied on. Um, on heat, you know, being to overpower guys. It's always been about deception. But but the important thing is that he has enough heat on that fastball that it differentiates from the off-speed pitches. 
And so it, it's this is the first time that we're seeing this. They gave him the rest of the season off, didn't force him back to give him time to recover as much as he needs. I mean, from the sounds of things, I don't see him even coming back until after the All-Star break. So, you know, I would say wow, that... Wow, not till after the All-Star break. That would, that would be my guess. Now, I'm not, I don't have the medicals in front of me, but, but, you know, it didn't sound like he was thrown off a mound yet even, right? right. And that was in January. So when you're talking right. about January and you're not throwing off the mound, you're talking about, okay, you're going to have to build that up. You're going to have, and again, they're taking it slow is what they said. They're going to have to build that up. He's going to have to have minor league stints before he's ready. I mean, I just, I, I you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. And, and we're going to have a lot of guys that are out there in Arizona watch, and I'm going to go out to Arizona myself and see what I can see and, and, you know, report back to, to, to you guys and, and see what I see. But no, I, I, you know, it'd be, if he comes back before the all-star game, great, but easily not coming back the first two months, maybe he comes back in June. And if not, then you're in July when the all-star game plays. So I am not a hundred percent and you never know with setbacks or anything like that. So I'm not holding my breath for Kyle to make a return. I, I, if he comes and he's effective, absolutely awesome. But I, you know, I think the Cubs and you can see it by the way that they've loaded up their rotation that they're, they're not, 100% certain he'll be back. So you're not relying. You're not sitting here going, you know, I'm not talking, you know, going back to the days of 2004 and 2005 and, oh, you know, if Wood and, and Pryor are healthy. We're not worried about if, 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 if Kyle is healthy. If Kyle is healthy and he's 100%, then Kyle's an asset to any team and he's going to be great with the Cubs and it would be as a starter. But, but they're not relying on it. They're not counting on that at all. Right. Well, we're going to have Tommy Hadovy on pretty early in the week next week. So hopefully that's something that he can shed a little bit of light on for us. We went over the starters. We kind of talked about the guys that would take the multi-inning roles. We do want to look a little bit here at the other guys in the bullpen, the short inning, high leverage situations. A couple names we just want our listeners right. to kind of be aware of. Jeremiah Estrada. He's been on the program. Flamethrower. He appeared in five games last season, but he threw two of the fastest pitches of any Cubs uh, reliever. And you also have Julian Merriweather. Remember, the Cubs picked him up off waivers uh, from Toronto. Michael Rucker appeared in 41 games with the Cubs last season. And then Brandon Hughes. Remember Brandon Hughes? It gets overlooked sometime um, when he ended up, uh, he made his debut the same time as Christopher Morrell. And, you know, Brandon Hughes was phenomenal last season, his first year in the bigs. And you saw he became a really trusted name that, that David Ross leaned on out of the bullpen. Well, and that's your lefty option right now, right? That, right. That, that, I mean, he's he's got to make the team. He's going to oh, be part of it. He's absolutely, absolutely making the team. And then, surprisingly enough, Rowan Wick is the veteran of the bullpen. He's been with the Cubs since 2019. So when you take a look at possible closers, Dustin, when we look at possible closers for this team, you're looking at, I would say, Rowan Wick, Brandon Hughes, and like I said, my dark horse candidate, Adbert Alzali. Wow. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Let's make sure we mark the tape because that uh, you could be uh, a little uh, schwamious and uh, we'll see uh, we'll see how that plays out. But really curious for the uh, our listeners to the podcast, let us know. Who do you see as a uh, bullpen uh, lock, maybe a, a lockdown guy in the in the eighth and ninth inning? Don't forget you can uh, reach out to us and uh, email us or hit us up on the social medias.
This is Season 2, Episode 11 of the Fly the W670 Podcast. Buck O'Neill and Ernie Banks. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the Fly the W Podcast. And in this segment, to honor Black History Month, Crawley continues his conversation with Bob Kendrick, President of the Negro League Baseball Museum. Joining me now on the Fly the W Podcast, we're glad to have back Bob Kendrick, President of the Negro League Baseball Museum, narrator of MLB's newly released animated series, Undeniable Stories from the Negro Major Leagues, and host of the wonderful podcast, Black Diamonds. Welcome back, Bob. I know you're excited. Super Bowl tomorrow and your Chiefs are going for it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a lot of excitement, as you can well imagine, brewing here in Kansas City and uh, with the Chiefs hopefully winning another Super Bowl title and bringing it home to Kansas City and, and all the things that are happening in and around the museum. You touched on the new animated series, Undeniable Stories from the Negro Leagues that I'm so proud to lend my voice to. And animation is such an amazing way to bring the story of the Negro Leagues to life because there wasn't a lot of film footage around the Negro Leagues and particularly game film footage. And so as a storyteller, you try to paint a picture uh, of what these players look like and these scenes from these games. And now through animation, you can actually bring it to life. So can you imagine Buck O'Neill, who oftentimes told the story of the epic showdown between Satchel and Josh Gibson in the 1942 Negro League World Series? And he did. He made you feel like you were there. But now you can be there because through animation, you can create that scene and you can see the mythical-like power of Josh Gibson and the flamboyance and charisma of Satchel and the length and the speed of his pitches. All of that can now be, can kind of be brought to life through this animation process, but we're just so thrilled to have partnered with Major League Baseball to create these animated shorts that are being released this year. And then also the fact that the Negro Leagues are now going to be included in the Sony PlayStation video game, MLB The Show 23. And and people are super excited because Buck O'Neill is one of the eight players that we will be introduced in the video game this year. We'll introduce eight players each year for the next four years. And so people will get an opportunity to play as these legendary figures from the Negro Leagues, but we also created many documentary series inside the video game so you can learn more about these players. And this is all exciting because Crawley, as you can well imagine, our biggest challenge as a history museum and a cultural institution is how do I make this history relevant to an ever-changing generation of young people? And, And I can't wait for them to come to me at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I've got to go to them and, and, and I have to go to them in the modes and mediums in which they are accustomed to getting their information so that hopefully we can get them now to engage and fall in love with this story of these legendary ball players, just like you and I have fallen in love with these stories. And so it's been an exciting run for the museum, but it certainly can be punctuated with a Chiefs Super Bowl win. (laughs) As a Bears fan, I barely know what that is. I'm almost 50, Bob, and the last time they won, I was eight years old. So it's been a while, but 
I got to tell you, Bob, my jaw dropped when I saw the announcement of MLB The Show, because for everything you've done, it's just it's been phenomenal to to reach to the young people like you have. But there is no medium greater than MLB The Show when it comes to baseball fans as far as reach. That is, I talk, Bob, to a lot of Cubs minor league players and, and all of them to a T play that game. Yeah. I work at a high school, every kid, you know, even if they don't even, they don't even play baseball, they play more of the show than they do the actual physical yeah, game exactly, of baseball. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's what we're trying. That's it. That's exactly the audience that we're trying to connect with. And, and I think we have a great opportunity to do so uh, just on my way. I'm actually in my office today recording this with you. And just on my way upstairs, there were a number of high school kids who were in the museum and all of them, were aware of this inclusion of the Negro Leagues in the video game. And every one of them was excited. And just as you mentioned, I asked us, well, do any of you guys play baseball? Not one of them play baseball. Yeah, but they are excited about this game. And so I do think we have a chance to help them fall in love with these legends of the game as well. And this incredible story that we are now preserving here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, I'm happy for you and your team, and you guys just continue to do great things. Last time we talked, Bob, you know, we, we were talking about the great Buck O'Neill and his career as, as both a player and a manager. And uh, the one thing that we talked about is how important he was to the city of Chicago. And there's, you know, whether it was from being the first MLB black coach, whether it was his scouting, whether everything he did, so important to the organization. But the one relationship that he created and the one player that he, you know, got the Cubs to sign was Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. That is the face of the organization. And that does not happen with Buck without Buck O'Neill. And, so, and, and so when we talk about Ernie, he was born in a segregated part of Dallas, Texas. Growing up, he was a great athlete, but he really wasn't into baseball. Is that right? Yeah, no, Ernie was a tremendous athlete there in Dallas and probably was a better softball player than he was a baseball player at that time, but a multi-sport uh, played basketball. And, you know, Ernie was a tremendous athlete and the great cool Papa Bell, uh -huh, who was managing the junior Monarchs or the Monarchs' second team, saw Ernie playing down in Dallas, Texas, and instantly saw something in Ernie that sparked him to call Buck O'Neill and say, hey, Buck, I think I got one for you. And Buck said, can he pick it? Cool said, yeah, he can pick it. And Buck O'Neill reaches out to Ernie Banks and he signs Ernie Banks, basically sight unseen, based on cool Papa Bell's recommendation, along with the recommendation of the late, great William Bill Blair. Skinny Legs Blair, former Negro Leaguer who was also there in Dallas, who knew Ernie quite well. And Bill Blair ran, before he passed away, a, a weekly Black newspaper called the Elite News. Now, it's spelled elite, but the Negro Leaguers, they pronounce it Elite. The Elite News still produces a weekly African-American paper there through his sons now that Mr. Blair had passed away. And Mr. Blair put Ernie, got Ernie two suits, and they put him on the bus and they sent him to Kansas City to Buck O'Neill, where Ernie would then join the great Kansas City Monarchs and begin a kindred relationship with Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill Crawley was Ernie's 
surrogate father. Yeah, he really was. He was Ernie's surrogate father. He took care of Ernie. Ernie will say that Buck taught him how to play the game. Buck will say that no, Ernie knew how to play the game. I taught him how to love the game. Uh-huh. And, and that love, of course, exuded throughout his career with the Monarchs and then on over, of course, to the Chicago Cubs. But you're right. It does not happen without the tutelage of one John Jordan Buck O'Neill. And, and when I talk about him being a surrogate father, I really mean it because Buck taught him social graces. He taught him how to dress. And I tell people all the time, if you didn't know Buck O'Neill, but you knew Ernie Banks, you knew Buck O'Neill. Uh-huh. And because Ernie just embodied that spirit of Buck. And, and he did grow to love this game. And you could see it in the way that he played this game, the infectiousness of the joy that he brought to the game was, was pretty special. And a lot of that started to develop during his time here in the Negro Leagues with the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, I, I, was, I was listening to your great episode on Ernie on your Black Diamonds podcast, and it was mentioned that Buck worked constantly with Ernie, oh. and Ernie loved it. He, you know, he loved that more than he loved to actually play in the game, hitting him ground balls and all that stuff. Did Buck hot, do that? The did, hot summer heat of Kansas <laughs> City, man. Yeah, just one ground ball after another so he could work on his fielding. And Buck was determined. He saw the greatness in Ernie as well. And so now it's about pulling it out of him. And, and of course, by the time Ernie is with the Monarchs, the opportunity to move to the major leagues was real. You know, this wasn't a pipe dream anymore. You already had the major leagues integrated. And so Buck worked tirelessly with Ernie, helping him hone his skills. And Ernie just talked about the more work he put in, the more he loved it. Yeah, he didn't want to stop. And, and it paid off handsomely for, for Mr. Cub. Did Buck do that for any other players or was there just a special relationship between the two? Well, there was certainly a very special bond between Ernie and Buck. And Ernie was a young player. You know, a lot of the Monarch stars were seasoned ball players. So you're probably not going to put in that kind of work as much with them. But Buck was always willing to. So if a player wanted it, Buck was always there for him. And I think that's another one of those traits we talked about the last time when you and I got together about why Buck was such a great manager, because he was willing to put in the work with those young players to help develop them. He saw the potential in them. And he wanted to do everything he possibly could to try and bring that out of them, which it also included instilling confidence in their abilities. Because believe it or not, when Ernie got to Kansas City, he was shy and, and somewhat of an introvert. And, and no one would believe that because, well, you know, by the time it was all said and done, Ernie never stopped talking. And, and <laughs> <laughs> But, but but you're right that, that he he is known at 19 he's a shy introvert and like you said if you know Ernie you know Buck and a lot of those let's play too it's a beautiful day for a ball game the sun is shining that's Buck O'Neill's personality oh, okay. oh no, that, no no doubt about it that sunny disposition was the spillover effect of being around Buck O'Neill 
And not only did Ernie have it, Lou Brock had the same thing. You know, by the time Buck brings Lou to Chicago. And, and of course, we know how that worked out. The Cubs would eventually send Lou to St. Louis, where Lou immediately takes off and becomes eventually a Hall of Famer. Uh, and, and so that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. <laughs> but both Lou and Ernie were Buck's surrogate sons, and, and they, they basically mimicked the man that they were so drawn to and who was so inspirational in their careers. And, and Crawley, that relationship didn't end after they were done playing baseball. They remained connected to Buck. Anytime Buck O'Neill would call Lou and Ernie to ask them to come to Kansas City to do something, there was no hesitation. You can best believe they were here. Yeah, they were absolutely here. And I don't know of two other individuals, maybe beyond myself, who were more disappointed when Buck didn't get in the Hall of Fame in 2006. They were genuinely disappointed and hurt, just as I was. It was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do when I walked in the conference room adjacent to this office and tell Buck O'Neill he didn't get enough votes to get in the Hall of Fame. And Ernie Banks said, I would gladly give up my place in the Hall of Fame for wow. Buck to be there. You know, so they, they were hurt. They maintained that relationship. This wasn't just a baseball relationship. No, no, no. This was a relationship between those who were as close as blood family members. And, and I'm very fortunate. I was there for the ride. I got to experience and have wonderful times with both Ernie Banks and Lou Brock right there with Buck O'Neill. And I was just telling the story to a reporter this morning, a guy who's writing out of Hot Springs, Arkansas, where I'm going to be speaking there in April. And we're taking a traveling exhibition down to Hot Springs. And he asked me about my role here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I can tell you, Crawley, there are so there have been so many pinch me moments. You know, it comes with the territory. It's a, it's a job that you do and you try to do it to, your, to the best, very best of your ability. But I'm still a fan. And when every now and then the receptionist would yell out to me in my office, uh, Mr. Kendrick, Ernie Banks is on the phone for you. <laughs> and I, I have to think to myself, Ernie Banks is on the phone for me. You know, Lou Brock is on the phone for me. Henry Aaron is on the phone for me. You know, you can't help but pinch yourself. And in those moments, as you could well imagine, are all so very special. And so uh, I just relish in the times that I got to spend with Ernie and his presence was always so meaningful and his support of this museum was always tremendous. And obviously his love for his guy, Buck O'Neill remained steadfast until the day he passed away. Yeah, and and Ernie, you think about his formative years. He's 19 years old when he comes to Kansas City. And last time you and I talked, Buck, you know, said it was the center of the universe to him, yeah, you know. Yeah. For, for Ernie Banks, how was it for him coming in and, and seeing the Kansas City Monarchs coming from that segregated area of Texas? He's blown away. And he said to the day he died that his experiences playing in the Negro Leagues were the greatest experiences in baseball he ever had. You think about this, Crawley. All of a sudden, he is immersed into Black culture at a level that he had never experienced before. He is surrounded by enormous talent playing for the Monarchs. 
and then he's thrust into the culture of Kansas City, that center of the universe that we talked about where all the great jazz stars were walking around and they're at the game and he's right there in their midst and, and he's now becoming a star as well and the, the fan base that followed the Monarchs falling in love with their Monarchs and a young ball player named Ernest Banks. You know, so yeah, no, it was mind blowing for him. And, and I think that was part of the reason that when he gets signed by the Cubs, he didn't want to leave. He did not want to leave Kansas City. And I think a lot of that, Crawley, was because he was comfortable. He was comfortable here. He is around people who look just like him. And he's in an environment where he could be himself. He knew that once he left the Kansas City Monarchs, even if it was to go fulfill the dream of playing in the major leagues, that he was going to be isolated. That was this constant fear of isolation. And that was going to be a natural byproduct of the early transition for those black players into the major leagues. They were going to be totally isolated. So here in Kansas City, they were going to play a game. Then everybody's going to get cleaned up. They're going to come eat dinner. And then they go into the nightclubs. They're going to listen to some jazz. And they're just going to have a great time. And he could just be himself. When he gets to the north side there to join the Cubs, he already knew that he's going to be isolated. After the games, his teammates were going to go into their own world. And he's going to be left to literally fend for himself. Fortunately, the great Gene Baker was also there with the Cubs. And Gene Baker and Ernie Banks were relegated to the South Side, where they had to fend for themselves during that era of segregation. And so his fears were absolutely grounded in truth. But he, eventually, this all started to change. But he, he knew early on he was going to enter into a world of complete isolation as it related to his baseball family. Right. And, and, and so, you know, he plays in Kansas city in 1950, Ernie Banks, but in 51 and 52, he serves his country. He's in the military. He comes back to the Monarchs in 53, but he kind of struggles in that 53 season. He gets hurt. Uh, you know, he's married at this time now and he leaves the Monarchs and Buck O'Neill had to go to Texas to bring him back. Do you know what Buck said to get him back? You know, I can only imagine what Buck said to get him back because, you know, not only did Buck have to go get Ernie, he also went and got Billy Williams. And, and so it seemed like Buck was always bringing these Cubs, Stars, and Hall of Famers back into the fold after they had kind of given up on the game and the grind of the game. And, you know, this game is tough. This game is tough. It's a kid's game, but man, you got to be a man to play it. And you're going to go through those dry spells and things seem to happen that had not happened previously. As you mentioned, he goes through a series of injuries. He's not playing up to the level in which he probably thought he should have been playing. That's the grind of the game. And I guarantee you every star who's ever played this game have gone through that and have probably have gone through moments of doubt when they were ready to give up on this game too, because this game is a tough game to play. And yet it is still the sport crawler that 
everybody thinks they can play. It's probably the most difficult game of all of the major sports to play. Because you think about this, it's the only sport really of the major sports where you are on offense and you don't have the ball. No, no, no. The other team got the ball when you're on offense. That's how difficult this game is. Yet, as Buck O'Neill would say, you could have two 80-year-old men sitting on the couch watching a baseball game and a guy drops a pop fly and the first words that come out of their mouth, I could have caught that. Uh (laughs) But if, if, if LeBron James misses a dunk, we're not all saying we could have done that. You know, but that's baseball. That's the beauty of baseball because it is a game that everyone thinks that they can play, even though it is the most challenging game of them all. And so, yeah, you're going to go through these ruts. It's inevitable. And it's about how you ultimately build the moxie to get back in the batter's box, you know, dust yourself off, get back in there and go to work. And so Ernie quit and Buck went and got it. And, and, uh, you know, I am sure with Ernie being as young as he was, Buck wanted to nurture him back and instill that belief that, yes, you can do this, son. I know you can do it. I see it in you. And Ernie comes back and, and things start to change. Right. He has a very successful end of the 1953 season. And then he joins the Jackie Robinson barnstorming team. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Jackie Robinson barnstorming teams. Oh, man, that team was loaded. That team was loaded with stars from the Negro Leagues. And Ernie talked about being surrounded by these this incredible group uh, of African-American stars who were touring the country with Jackie Robinson filling up ballparks everywhere they went, playing against a lot of different teams, including some other Negro League teams, and basically beating everybody that they came up against. So it was a dynamite team. And Ernie said he he enjoyed that experience. And I think when you play around that kind of talent and you can kind of hold your own, that also instills belief that you belong. Because at some point, I do think you question whether or not you belong. Uh And then when you get out there and you do it on that kind of stage, you know, yeah, now you know as an athlete, okay, I'm built for this. I can handle this. I'm good enough to be here. And I do think that tour helped Ernie quite a bit, you know, instilling the additional confidence in his abilities playing against and with and against the creme de la creme of this sport, particularly as it related to to black baseball. Yeah, yeah, Larry Doby, not Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella, and then and then to sit there and 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 with Jackie Robinson telling Ernie you can play in the major leagues. I mean, that just had to do so oh. much for uh, his confidence. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And Jackie had gone the same path. He'd come through the Kansas City Monarchs, albeit he was only here for 5 months when he gets his breakthrough and, and joins the Brooklyn Dodgers. But I got to believe, again, if Jackie Robinson said you can play in the major league, then you all of a sudden believe, okay, I can play in the major league. You know, I don't know if there's a much better endorsement from the guy who broke the color barrier and who had already had success at the major league level telling you that, yeah, you belong, you can do this. Now, I think that for me, you know, is that you mentioned it earlier, 
when it came time and people realized, whether it was Jackie Robinson, whether it was Buck O'Neill, everybody realizes, Ernie, you belong in the majors. Ernie didn't want to go. He, he was happy in Kansas City. Yeah. How was it that you think that Buck and, and some of the Kansas City teammates were able to convince Ernie to go to Chicago? Well, as we know, Buck was one that's saying, Ernie, you got to go. You have to go because this is what's going to allow others to follow you. And I'm sure that put even more pressure on a young Ernie Banks because you don't want to be the one that becomes a roadblock for others to have the opportunities. He had already witnessed what Jackie had done, which created the opportunity for him. And I think there is a sense of obligation to make sure that you're doing your absolute best to keep that door open for others. So yeah, so there's, I think, even more pressure on him as he's now trying to make this very hard decision to break out of his comfort zone to go do something not only for him, but for his people. You know, and I think, Crawley, that's the thing that is lost on a lot of fans that not only were these guys trying to break through and play in the major leagues, but every one of those early black baseball pioneers were essentially carrying the weight of a race of people on their shoulders. They felt that. They knew they had to succeed because if they didn't, it was somehow going to be a stain against the African-American community. And whether that was real or not, they felt that. And you can hear from the likes of Ernie and Henry Aaron, uh, Monty Irvin, they just knew that they had to excel because they felt the pressure that if they didn't succeed, it may limit the possibilities of someone else getting the opportunity. That's a lot of weight, man to go out and play a game, and we've talked about this before, a game that in it, by its crux is a game of failure. This is a game of failure and you feel like you cannot fail because if you fail, someone else may not get the opportunity. And so Ernie was very, very well aware that of those who had opened the door for him, and now it was his time to go and then also leave that door open for whoever might follow him. And, and one of the coolest things about Ernie's time in Kansas City is that his roommate was the great Elston Howard, the first black Yankee. Yeah, he and Ellie were roommates. They stayed at the Street Hotel here in Kansas City, which was the black owned hotel right down on the corner, just uh, beyond my office there at 18th and Paseo here in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. And Ernie used to say they would stay up at night, kind of wondering who would be the first to get to the major league because it was real now. And so even though there was hesitation, he was still dreaming about the possibilities. Right. Yeah, he was still dreaming about the possibilities because he knew it was real. 
Great conversation with Mr. Kendricks, and this is the Fly the W670 podcast. It's season two. It's episode 11. We want you to listen, download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. In this segment, we continue with Bob Kendrick as he explains the rough transition that Ernie Banks went through as he joined the Cubs and how he reunites with Buck O'Neill once again when Buck becomes MLB's first black coach. Now, one of the stories that I absolutely love, and there's pictures, you can see this, but Ernie's in Chicago, he's at a hotel, and Buck tells him, hey, meet me, meet me, meet me in the lobby, drives him around, and pulls up, you know, for the first time, doesn't tell him where they're going, pulls up right to the marquee that's still there at 1060 West Addison, and, and Buck is there when Ernie signs his contract with the Cubs. I mean, that had to have been just such an amazing moment. And at this time, Buck is not a member of the Cubs organization. No. But he, he gets he gets Ernie to sign. Yeah, no, he wasn't officially. Although they already had a handshake deal in place that Buck was going to come join the Cubs as a coach as soon as his tenure was over with the Monarchs. And after the 55 season, Buck went on over to the Cubs. But one of his first assignments was to bring Cubs, the Cubs Ernie Banks. And that's what he did. And I'm sure. It was a proud day for Buck O'Neill to see his protege now move into Major League Baseball and have a chance to fashion what would ultimately become a Hall of Fame career there with the Cubs. And, and for him to be there, I'm sure, meant the world to a young Ernie Banks, you know, who was walking into a, a world that he really wasn't sure what to expect. And to have Buck there, I know, meant a great deal to him. Now, you know, the, the thing, as you mentioned, is the isolationism. You know, they brought up Gene Baker, and that was kind of the practice with MLB is to bring up two Negro League players. So, you know, someone to kind of talk to and, and be with. And, and, and so, you know, as Chicago being a very segregated city, they're on the south side, the rest of the team's on the north side. And those were kind of some tough years for Ernie because, you know, just the camaraderie, especially in the clubhouse, just wasn't there. No, no. And that was going to be a natural, again, byproduct of what happens with those early black players who came into Major League Baseball. And more times than not, your teammates didn't want you to be there. They really did not want you to be there. It's not like you're being welcomed with open arms. And even by the time that Ernie gets there, there's still this hesitation of acceptance of these players. And so we created an exhibition last year in recognition and commemoration of the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of baseball's color barrier. And the exhibition is called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit Crawley chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams color barriers. So from Jackie joining Brooklyn through Elijah Pumpsey Green being the last to complete the integration cycle, believe it or not folks, 12 years later, <clears throat> it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. Wow. Pumpsy Green would be the last to complete the integration cycle with the Red Sox in 1959. And the reason that we wanted to create this exhibit is because people by and large know Jackie's story. It's very courageous, pioneering story. Right. But the other integration pioneers, we don't really talk about. And that's how we are as a society. We always celebrate the first, 
we rarely ever celebrate the second. And if you're number 16, you can pretty well much forget it. No one ever talks about you. As you well know, Larry Doby would integrate the American League just literally weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League. Doby integrates the American League with then the Cleveland Indians. Of course, now they're the Cleveland Guardians. And Larry mm-hmm. Doby went through just as much, some may argue even more than Satchel Paige, I mean, than Jackie Robinson. But the other side of the equation is there were five guys who go up in 1947. So not just Jackie, but Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead would all go up in 1947. And a few folks now recognize Larry Doby's pioneering role. But the other guys are the answers to a trivia question. Right. And as I remind folks, it didn't get any easier for Elijah Pumsey Green in 1959 in Boston than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947 when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. All of these guys, all of these integration pioneers had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to blaze a path to pursue their major league careers. You're walking into an environment where, again, your teammates don't really want you there because fear was governing this as well. Because every time one of those players came on to one of those major league teams, Crawley, they took somebody's job. They took a white player's job. And they took the job of someone who was a friend of that guy on that team. So naturally, there was some animosity that was associated with this kind of transitioning process. And it was only after these guys were able to demonstrate their great abilities that they start to gain more and more acceptance. And then the reality of having us all together starts to break down those misnomers and stereotypes that so often govern how we learn about one another. Typically, we learn about one another by based on what somebody said. Somebody said, well, you know, they like that. But then when we're in that locker room together, now you see me every single day. You see me every single day. And I see you every single day. And then all of a sudden, those things that you heard about me and those things that I heard about you, they don't even remotely apply. And that's what we saw with Jackie Robinson. You know, all those players, and many of them were from the deep south who had this kind of implanted mindset about what Black folks were like. And here comes Jackie, and he's nothing like they thought he would be. And he's talented. And now we're winning. And I can tell you now, winning cures a lot of ills. (laughs) Now, it cures a lot of ills, but once they saw your ability start to manifest itself, that too helped chip, chip away at some of the stigma that was associated with it. But yeah, no, I mean, can you imagine? It's difficult to walk into an environment where you don't feel welcomed. Yeah, you don't feel welcomed. And somehow or another, you have to will yourself to be able to perform and perform at a high level. And Ernie was able to do that. Right. And, and, and so, you know, the first couple of years, you know, he's up in Chicago, but then Buck does join the Cubs officially as a scout. And, and that had to have been huge for, for Ernie to be reunited with his surrogate father. Oh, no question. Because again, 
now the comfort zone is growing greater because you got somebody that can relate to you and you can relate to him. And when things aren't going well, you do have a shoulder that you feel comfortable crying on and, and, a, and an ear that was always willing to hear what you had to say and someone you trusted. So when Buck O'Neill gave you advice, you knew it was sound advice. He was telling you not what you wanted to wanted to hear, but what you needed to hear uh -huh, so that he could help push you to become everything that you kind of wanted to become, but maybe had doubts about your ability that you could become that. And so that had to make a world of difference in terms of Ernie's just level of comfort to have someone that he had a relationship with that was an integral part now of the organization. Right. And, and, and with Ernie, right after Buck's there, it doesn't take too much longer after that that he wins the MVP in 58 and 59. Now, the one thing about Ernie, though, and, and, and you know, this is kind of a tricky part because, you know, there's part of him that kept to himself a lot. There's a part of him that kind of deflected. And now that I've read so many books and led, read so many interviews and I, I met Ernie met plenty of times and he'd always ask me questions. I keep thinking about how different it would be, you know, if I was able to get him on a show like this. But the thing about Ernie is that that personality that he learned from Buck O'Neill, a lot of the first black players that kind of came through were more reserved and kind of very careful as they, you know, as they were probably, obviously there's all the pressure that you talked about. Ernie was, was really one of the first players to kind of really kind of show a more playful side of himself. Yeah. That, and that's Buck, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think the other ball players who had transitioned into the major leagues before him, I don't know if they felt like they could be them their natural selves. You know, you had to kind of adhere and you had to play a certain way to gain acceptance. And so their personalities didn't seem to come out the way that Ernie, who felt a whole lot more comfortable eventually allowing his personality to come out in not only the way he played, but the way he ultimately related to the fan base there in Chicago. He is one of the early black players to actually be able to showcase that. You know, the other guys were very reserved, very workmanlike in their approach to the game. And, and I don't think that had they not been in that situation, that would have been the case. I think they would have seen, you would see much more of their personality. And then you get an Ernie Banks. And then eventually you get a, you, you know, you also get a Willie Mays. And so these guys got to show their personalities. Right. Yeah, where Jackie Robinson had to be so laser focused and so workmanlike. And he was trying to defy a stereotype in his, in that process of proving that we were capable of playing this game at the major league level. So they could not do the exact same things. Now, Larry Doby was naturally a very quiet kind of guy. He wasn't that big personality. Now, Satchel was that big personality, but even Satchel had to subdue his personality when he gets to Cleveland in 1948. He can't be that big, big personality that he had been in the Negro League because it would have been so much frowned upon uh, there at the major league level which again, Major League Baseball really missed not allowing these guys. And I won't say they didn't allow. I think the guys felt like they weren't allowed 
maybe they would have been. But, you know, Satchel's personality is one that a lot of those who watched him in the major league didn't get to see. Right. You know, and like they got to see in the Negro Leagues and that charisma and the energy that he brought like that. Now, they saw the talent. They got to witness the talent of an old man. Yeah, whether he was 42 or 52, by the time he gets to the major leagues, we don't know. But he was still dealing when he got there to the major leagues. But he couldn't be himself. And, and I think a lot of the guys felt that way. Again, I don't know if that was forced on them by Major League Baseball or if they just felt like they had to acquiesce and, and act in a certain way so that they wouldn't ruffle any feathers along the way. Right. Now, Buck was named the first black coach in the major leagues by the Cubs in 1962. He was not assigned in-game co uh, base coaching duties, uh, nor was he included in the College of Coaches, which was a silly system that the Cubs had <laughs> back in the 60s. Um, but that had to have been a proud moment for Ernie at that moment to kind of see Buck, you know, break that color barrier as far as coaching and managerial responsibilities. Oh, no question. No question. And, and I think all the black players who Bucket had some influence in bringing to the Cubs were excited about his promotion to a coach. And, and I think a lot of them were disappointed that he never got to get on the field. Yeah. And, and I do think had Buck gotten on the field, Buck would have likely have been the first black manager in this sport. Because Buck, as he would say himself, he knew the Cubs system from top to bottom. And he had brought so much of that talent along and groomed so much of that talent and worked with damn near everybody within the organization. So they knew his capability. And had he gotten on the field, I think it would have been difficult to take him off the field. And he talked about his inherent pride in being named the first African-American coach. Now, think about what you just said, though. 1962. That's 15 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier. And we're just getting our first African-American coach. And as Buck would say, Crawley, I was proud of the accomplishment. But I wish I had been the 999th black coach in Major League, or 9,999th black coach in Major League Baseball, as opposed to being the first. So yes, it meant a little bit more money, perhaps better living conditions. But as he would also go on to say, I can't stick out my chest being the first when I knew all of these other great black baseball minds who were more than capable of waving a guy home. Right. And yet he's that breakthrough moment as a coach. And so it goes to show that the field was integrated, but baseball's leadership realm is hierarchy. This was very slow to take place. 15 right. years before you get the first black coach. And then you don't get your first black manager until the 1970s with Frank Robinson. And then you don't get your first black general manager to years later with Bill Lucas. So all these great minds who were there in the Negro Leagues and Buck knew them well, who would have been great leaders at the major league level, they didn't get those opportunities. Yeah, no, the field guys got the opportunity, but not the guys, not the minds of black baseball. They really didn't get the opportunity. Right. And, you know, the, the one thing that I always think about is how much you mentioned it earlier that Ernie never forgot his roots and what Buck O'Neill did for him for his career. And whether it was his Hall of Fame speech or, or, or in so many interviews and and honestly, 
uh, Bob, nothing makes me smile more than when I get to see old tape of those two talking with each other. Cause you can, you can, you can feel the love between those two guys, the respect, the love, the relationship. And it, to me, it's important for Cub fans. And, and, and for many reasons, I love having you on, but to understand that without Buck, this everything that you know about Ernie Banks and Mr. Cubs, the player he became, the man he became, doesn't happen without Buck O'Neill. No, it, it it doesn't. And what a shame it would have been if we'd have missed out on a talent like Ernie Banks. Yeah. And that can be said for so many of the players who call the Negro Leagues home, who fans fell in love with them when they got to the major leagues. I oftentimes pose the question to my guests. Can you imagine our sport without Ernie Banks, without Henry Aaron, without Willie Mays, without Roy Campanella, without Roberto Clemente and Bob Gibson? And if you can, Crawley, you can imagine what it was like before 1947, because man, they didn't learn how to play after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. So had the doors open sooner, we as baseball fans would have been privy to some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. Yeah, and how much better would our game have been at, if the doors had been open sooner, just as it became after 1947, the game just simply got better with the admission of both black and brown players into the major leagues. And so now you are truly giving the very best athletes an opportunity to showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And who were the benefactors of that? We as fans, we got to see this. And to imagine a major league baseball without Ernie Banks is hard to even fathom. Right. He's so ingrained in Cub fan culture. It's something. Bob, where can people follow you and the museum on Twitter? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at NLB Prez, P-R-E-Z, the museum at NLB Museum KC on Twitter and the same on Instagram. Both of us, our usernames are the same on Instagram, NLB Prez on Twitter and Instagram and NLB Museum KC for the museum itself on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can follow us on the World Wide Web at NLBM.com. Right. And and don't forget to continue to follow the animated series, Undeniable yeah. Stories of the Negro Leagues. Uh, the, the, the most recent one just dropped, correct? Yes. The most recent one that looks at the international impact of the Negro Leagues. And folks have been fascinated to see the connection. Our sport is a global game. And surprisingly, y'all, it is a global game in large part to the impact of the Negro Leagues. Absolutely. So check that out. And don't forget to check out Bob's own podcast, Black Diamonds, wherever you stream podcasts. Bob, thank you for coming on again. We always appreciate talking with you. Anytime, Crawley. Thanks for having me, man. And, and good luck to your Chiefs tomorrow. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Go Chiefs. <laughs> that's a wrap of season two episode 11 buck o'neill and ernie banks crowley great job with bob kendricks and uh hope you uh can find a way to enjoy super bowl sunday we're all pulling for the chiefs on this side of the uh fly the w podcast so hopefully when we get back together early next week we can uh 
cheers that uh, we were right and the Chiefs are the uh, world champs. Yeah, I'm going to be at Club 400 today, so as much as I don't care about the foosball, at least I got squares, I got some prop bets, and I have plenty of beer. Uh, if any Cubs news breaks, and I doubt it's going to happen during the Super Bowl, you can follow us on the socials, fly the W670 on Instagram and Twitter, fly the W on Facebook, and you can email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Go Chiefs and go Cubs. It's all over.